Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. We are in a series talking about the most incredible event in human history. Nothing can compare to it. Now, I guess I should agree that maybe that sounds maybe a little bit like hyperbole, sounds like I'm overselling it. I mean, human history is full of monumental events that have affected large portions of mankind. The great ancient empires of Egypt, Greece, Rome, the armies of Genghis Khan or Genghis Khan. There have been unprecedented world calamities such as the ice ages, the rising and lowering of the world's oceans, earthquakes that shape the continent of the world. There have been great human achievements in the arts and sciences, inventions and discoveries that have altered the human condition, both positively and negatively. All of these things and many more have left an impact. Many of these things are incredible. But nothing that has ever happened on this earth has ever affected every single person to have ever lived, past, present, and future, except for what we've been talking about the last few weeks. Of course, you know, I'm talking about the resurrection. Now, to be certain, the world thinks the resurrection is a myth. The world thinks it's too smart to believe such nonsense. I would even venture to guess that lots of people who would classify themselves as Christian, when pressed to affirm its truth, would either change the subject or otherwise avoid committing to such a foolish notion. Listen, and you know what? I'm not saying this is so easy to accept. If you sit down and just sort of think about what those actual witnesses are telling us, how everything transpired, the, the brutal death, the empty tomb, the physical appearances after the brutal death, you really have to stretch your mind to make sense of it. As a Christian, you really have to accept some pretty amazing things to be a fully believing Christian. Let's face it. Either you're a fully believing Christian or you're something else. No such thing as a partially believing Christian. You want to be a partially believing Buddhist? Go ahead. You want to be a partially believing Hindu? Go ahead. But you can't be a partially believing Christian because Jesus wasn't a partially believing Christian. He believed everything God said. Everything. He literally placed his life on the truth of what God said. Now listen, by the way, I've already said this to you in this series. No one is calling you to blind faith. God never expects you to turn your brain off to accept him. The one thing the Bible always teaches us is that God leaves us a witness. God will present at least some evidence for you to consider. 
the facts surrounding the resurrection are given to us in Scripture because God is smart. God is wise. He knows that you and I need more than just because I said so. Despite what most of the world thinks, you don't have to be a dummy to be a Christian. Now, thus far, we've spent a lot of time examining this case. But you should know we're doing precisely what anyone would do in any situation that requires a judgment call. We have been investigating the facts. We have been reviewing the evidence. And through all of this, we've come down to one inescapable truth. That tomb was empty. There can be no doubt from any of the records, sacred or otherwise. That tomb was empty. The challenge now and from that first day has not been whether the tomb was empty, but rather, why was it empty? And I contend, and I believe the evidence bears out, without producing a body, that tomb remains empty, and the best theory as to why it's empty is resurrection. Now, wait a minute, John. How do you get that? Well, of all the theories that have ever been produced, listen to me, only resurrection has corroborating evidence. Without evidence, everything else is guessing. Everything else is speculation. The resurrection is not speculation. The resurrection is not a guess. It is corroborated fact. Only the resurrection theory can produce evidence, evidence in the form of documented witness testimony. Listen, I'm going to tell you right now, if you can produce the body of Jesus, then that would be a piece of corroborating physical evidence for some theory other than resurrection. Production of the body of Jesus will impeach the evidence that's currently presented, which is witness testimony. Now, I don't mean to sound all legal on you. I'm not an attorney. But this is the way these things get figured out. Who has the best evidence in the debate? And as it stands... The resurrection is actually the only theory that has evidence. Now we're talking about the theory as to why the tomb was empty. I told you at the beginning of this little section just a couple of minutes ago that the only possible explanation for the empty tomb, and there can be no doubt that the tomb was empty, the only explanation for an empty tomb that we can accept is the resurrection because only the resurrection has documented evidence in the form of witness testimony. Now, if that tomb had not been empty or had any challenge to the fact of that empty tomb would been, had been successful, I guarantee we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't have gotten this far. We wouldn't be discussing this. There would be no such thing as Christianity. In fact, nobody would have ever heard of Jesus Christ. Why would they have? He wasn't anything special. He didn't do anything special in his earthly life. Some say he was a carpenter. I don't think so. I think he was a rabbi. I think he was a teacher. His father, his earthly father, the man that raised him, was a carpenter. I don't want to fight you on that. That's just my belief. And I don't think the Bible proves, doesn't say he was a carpenter. It says Joseph was a carpenter, doesn't say Jesus was a carpenter. 
People didn't go around saying, hey, carpenter, Jesus, I've got a question for you. They said, hey, rabbi, hey, master. Anyways, the world would not have heard of either the carpenter or the rabbi, Jesus, had there been a successful challenge to the emptiness of the tomb. Without the resurrection, the so-called historical Jesus, remember we said before, the existence of Jesus in history is now considered fact. Without the resurrection, by the way, that fact goes away. There would have been no documentation. Nobody, nobody would have bothered to write down about this guy. Nonetheless, without the resurrection, the accepted Jesus of history was either a really nice guy who was crazy or a terrible human being bent on self-promotion who was in the end discovered as a fraud. But that's not what the evidence suggests. You may want it to, but it doesn't. You have to admit the tomb was empty. Now, granted, not everyone would agree, listen to me, that the existence of an empty tomb taken in isolation necessarily meant Jesus rose. We went through this last time. We examined the other theories, none of which has corroborating evidence, but as is sometimes necessary to be fully informed, we looked at the plausibility of some of those other theories. So let's do that again real quick, just to set the stage for our discussion for today. Here are the non-resurrection theories, at least the ones we've identified. And I just want to remind you, that this is a discussion largely based on the resurrection series by Dr. Gene Scott. Number one, non-resurrection theory, Jesus survived. Remember, the non-resurrection theory of the empty tomb is what we're talking about. There was an empty tomb. That much we can agree on. The disciples said he rose. Everyone else says he didn't rise. They don't know what happened to him or these are the theories. These are the non-resurrection theories. They say he couldn't arose. That's not possible. Maybe one of these other ones is the right theory. Number one, Jesus survived the crucifixion and either walked out or was carried out alive. Now that's impossible. In the days of the empire, when Rome wanted someone dead, they died. And that includes every single level of society, all the way from the most insignificant slave, all the way up to emperors. If somebody wanted you dead, you would die. There was enough people at that time that wanted Jesus dead, so they killed him. Rome doesn't make that mistake. Number two, the Jewish leaders removed the body some for some reason. The Jewish leaders did it. That's why the tomb was empty. That makes no sense. There's no one group that would have more to lose from an empty tomb than they would. Best to just leave them there. They may have been bad men, but like too many bad men, they were also very smart men. They would not make this mistake. Besides, okay, besides, maybe they were not that smart. Maybe they had done so. Well, all they had to do is then admit their little trickery, produce the body, refute the claims of the risen Christ, and most likely stop Christianity before it even got started. That didn't happen. Number three, the Roman leaders stole or otherwise removed the body. Well, first of all, they would have no reason to do that. They too were very smart and at least aware of the implications of the impression that someone could survive one of their executions. They had their pride to look out for. They 
would not want to give anyone any reason to believe that Jesus had not been efficiently and effectively dispatched by their hands. Stealing the body and then not telling anyone about it would risk the aura of in power that Rome always had. And if they were so foolish to have done so, then once all the hubbub in Jerusalem started percolating, and it really started percolating, they were in danger of losing the peace. That was the one thing the Roman government was there to do, and is to keep the peace, and all they would have had to do to restore order after all of this would just allow someone to discover the body, just plant it somewhere, have somebody happen upon it, and say, oh, we found him. They didn't even have to admit that they stole him. Hey, there he is. Everybody calm down. Didn't rise from the dead. If they'd have done that, simple, easy, this would have never got off the ground. They would have maintained the peace and who knows how long the Roman Empire would have lasted. Well, as we know as before, this didn't occur either. Number four, non-resurrection theory of why that tomb was empty. Number four, the entire story from the moment that tomb was discovered empty was somehow mass hysteria. All the hundreds of people who thought they saw Jesus were just hallucinating. They were all hoping beyond hope that their, their leader survived such a terrible, brutal beating and crucifixion. Their, their imagination ran away with them, and they kept thinking that they saw Jesus when, in fact, they didn't. Now, of, of all the arguments, perhaps this has the least amount of merit. If mass hysteria could, listen to me, if it could ever be claimed as a defense, the entire judicial system would break down. Many, many cases stand on corroborating witness testimony, and if mass hysteria had any potential as a legitimate argument, believe me, there would be nothing but chaos in the courts. Now, that, was, that theory is hardly worth the three sentences we used to address it. Absolutely imbecilic. And again, as before, as in all these cases, all that one would have to do is go to the tomb, point out the dead body laying there, and all the crazies would be exposed. That didn't happen. How do you know? because we're still talking about it 2,000 years later. So number four didn't work. How about number five? Number five, non-resurrection theory as to why the tomb was empty. Simple, the women went to the wrong tomb. Now, once again, let's just make this simple. If that were the case, just go to the right tomb. That would put an immediate end to all the speculation and any discussion of a risen Savior would have gone nowhere. They would have just pointed to his dead body. How can he be risen if he's laying there under that shroud? All those make no sense. They make no sense. All that's left is a bunch of people who said that the tomb was empty because Jesus rose from the dead. That means there are really only two possibilities. The disciples either stole the body or they had no idea what happened and decided to make the whole thing up. Now, actually, those last two and perhaps all the others can be lumped together because it really comes down to one thing. The disciples lied. The witnesses lied. And because they lied, then they're unreliable, and their evidence 
in the form of their statements that the resurrection is the reason for the empty tomb cannot be considered in the case. If that were the situation, then no theory would be possible. We've already gone through the other theories. If the disciples lied, then nobody knows what happened. Certainly, we can say, if the disciples lied, then we can easily say, well, he didn't rise because that's impossible. We don't know what happened if they lied. All the possibilities can be wrapped up into one explanation. You can, you can, all those five or six that we talked about before come down to the same thing. And anything else you want to come up with, the disciples were liars. If that tomb was empty for any other reason, the ones we have listed or the ones that may exist that we haven't mentioned, if that tomb was empty for any reason other than resurrection, then those men were liars and nothing more. You see, the only claim that the leaders of the apostles ever made was that Jesus had risen, and that wasn't just because the tomb was empty. This goes far beyond that. This goes far beyond. Their explanation is the tomb is empty. That's, this is not their, they couldn't, they didn't say this. Well, since the tomb is empty, he must have risen. That's not what they said. As a matter of fact, they never said the tomb was empty. It's never came out of, never came out of their mouths. This isn't an empty tomb thing. This is a Jesus rose thing. They say Jesus rose because they saw him alive. Acts 2.23, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. That was Peter. Peter was speaking, and he was reporting the claims of all the disciples. He isn't saying, well, because it was empty, we we think he was risen. That's not the foundation of his proclamation of the risen Christ. He didn't just assume Jesus was risen because the tomb was empty. He said, A little further down, why he's proclaiming Jesus risen? Verse 32, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. We're not guessing that he rose. We saw him risen. I'll say it again. This isn't an empty tomb thing. This is a raised up thing, and they said they saw it. Peter included himself among the witnesses. Peter said he saw Jesus raised up by God. Listen, this statement of Peter's forces us to make a decision. There is nothing in between. Either Peter saw Jesus raised up or he's lying. This whole multi-part series comes down to that one and only choice. Resurrection or lie. Now, isn't that just like God? He's backed us into a corner. He's left us with no alternatives. Listen, God never paints in gray. It's either black or white, yes or no, life or death, heaven or hell, raised up or lying. That's all we have. That's really the only two possibilities. Right? What else is there? raised up or lying. So let's look at both. In fact, you know what? Let's just look at one. Because if we're convinced that one of those two is false, then the other one is true. That's what you get when you only have two choices. One is true and the other is false, on or off, one or zero. You programmers get that.
They can't both be true. Neither can they both be false. Therefore, all we need to do is look at one of the two. So I propose we examine, as best we can, whether or not these men and women lied. If we can convince ourselves that they are liars, then the resurrection didn't happen. And if the resurrection didn't happen, then you and I can go on with our lives. I'll end this program today. If we can convince ourselves that those disciples are liars, what's the point? But if we can convince ourselves that they're not lying, if we can't convince ourselves of the lie, if we can only convince ourselves that they're telling the truth, then you and I have some very serious contemplating to do. If what they said was a true reporting, then Jesus is the Messiah. If not, then he's not. And whatever he said he was, was a lie. And we don't worship liars. He said some really incredible things about himself that only the Messiah could say. And if he's not the Messiah, he's a liar or crazy. And we worship neither of those two. We shouldn't be. And liars and crazy people don't change the world the way a Messiah does. So to get this thing started, let's just take a few minutes to look at that period of time after the resurrection as described by Luke in his book, The Acts of the Apostles. Now this won't take very long because I really only have one or two points to make. Let's start at Acts 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. Now skipping down a few verses, verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. He did these signs and wonders and miracles among you. You saw it. You're witnesses of that. That's what he's saying. Verse 23, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Verse 24, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Now, the first point I want to make is this. According to the passage we just read, Peter's little speech was given in Jerusalem. The little speech we just read was in Jerusalem. It says right there in verse 14. This is how Peter addresses the crowd. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. Now, the way I look at it, Peter is at ground zero, so to speak. Peter was in the very place where all of these events were, were reported to have occurred. He said, he did all of those things in the midst of you. You guys are witnesses to it. Now, that's important. Listen to me. That's important to understand because if you're going to lie about something, would you lie about something to people who could easily check up on your story? I mean, wouldn't it be far more effective to lie about events that occurred in a faraway land, especially in those days when communication channels were sparse and slow? Wouldn't that be a better idea? Wouldn't that be a more effective 
and better long-lasting lie. Lie about something that happened in Timbuktu, not right here in your own neighborhood. If you're going to lie, go to Timbuktu and say it happened in Jerusalem, but don't go into Jerusalem talking to people that live in Jerusalem and know Jerusalem like the back of their hand and know what's going on around in Jerusalem the last few years. Don't tell them a lie. This lie, if it's a lie, is being told in the very neighborhood of the lie. This lie wasn't being told in Africa or Asia or Timbuktu. And listen, at that time, the Romans were actually settling vast lands in all directions. It could have been told elsewhere, but this story was not being told in Gaul or Spain or Greece. This wasn't being told in those places about Jerusalem. This, listen, this, you got to think about this for a second. This group of people began preaching the resurrection among the very people he was reported to have appeared to. The crowds were being told about, for instance, more than 500 people who had at one time in one single event, all saw Jesus at the same time, alive after the resurrection. And all of those people, all of those 500, were within, I'm going to guarantee you, this isn't biblical, but we can stretch our brains a little bit and say that every one of those people were within a day's journey or less from the heart of Jerusalem. And they could have been called upon to verify the story. They were in Jerusalem. Most of those 500, and we're just using the small sampling, small relative word, but the small sampling of the 500 who were said to have seen Jesus risen from the grave. They were all within today's journey. They could have said, hang on, Peter, I'm going to go up. I'm going to take me a half a day to go talk to Mary because she said she saw Jesus. She was one of the 500. I'm going to go verify the story and come back. You wouldn't want to do that if you're a liar. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which by God did by him, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. You saw all this. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. This didn't surprise God. None of this surprised him. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, being loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Peter was addressing the people gathered around him. They were his fellow countrymen right in their own backyard. Liars never speak in places and among people where their lies can be easily exposed. Imagine if I stood in the Philadelphia Eagles locker room and told a news reporter that I was the team's quarterback. All that reporter would have to do is turn around and ask anyone in that room. And my lie would be immediately exposed. Why would I do that? Peter was speaking to those who had actually been where and when Peter was saying these things happened. It is very likely that if Peter was lying at the very moment of his lies, they would have been exposed instantly. That didn't happen. No one exposed him as a liar. Another thing to consider here. Peter was acting as a spokesman at this point. He said, we were witnesses. He said, we were witnesses to Jesus being raised up. He didn't say, I was a witness. 
He said we were. He was standing with the 11, and he's at least the 11. There may have been others. But he said we saw them. We saw him raised up. Now listen to me. When Peter was saying these things, this was only around two months after the events occurred. And because of that short time frame, there is no doubt that there was still a lot of danger. Listen, their leader, the leader of this little band, the leader of these people was just executed as a traitor. If what Peter was saying was a lie, well, then he was implicating at least 10 other people in that treasonous lie, all of them standing with him. Now, don't you think that at least one of those others would have pulled, a, pulled Peter aside and said, what do you think you're doing? Stop lying and getting me in trouble. That didn't happen. You're going to hear me say that a lot today. That didn't happen. On the day of Pentecost, Peter said, we were witnesses and thereby implicating, incriminating everyone else in this lie. And if it were a lie, then they were going to suffer for it like he did. And yet not one of them stopped him. Don't you think at least one of them would want to save his own skin if it was a lie? In my opinion, even if just one of them stood, just one, one of the people standing with Peter, if just one of them would have stood up and told that crowd that Peter was a liar, none of this happened, most likely the crowd would have been on that person's side, not Peter's side. Therefore, there would have been nothing to fear from the crowd for exposing a charlatan. As a matter of fact, they probably would have thanked that person. Thank you for saving us from being fools because, you know, he was very convincing. He was, it was a really convincing ar argument. I was, I was almost pushed over, but thank God you stood up and you said he was a liar. Let's all, let's all stone the rest of them for being liars. Didn't happen. In fact, the Bible tells us 3,000 people were saved right there. It didn't happen that day of Pentecost, and it didn't happen the days, weeks, and months that followed. Nobody went around saying this whole thing is a lie. Don't trust Peter. He's just trying to make himself look good. That didn't happen. Those people that he said were also witnesses with him, nobody chimed in. Now, I know if, if you're a critic, you're probably thinking, well... Maybe all of these men were just sort of caught up in the moment. They saw Peter really doing a good job with the crowd, and they didn't want to be rude. Maybe, maybe they all decided to go along with this little lie for the moment, yeah, just to see where it takes us. Huh. Maybe, maybe these men thought, maybe, maybe we'll be able to profit from this lie that Peter was telling. People, it looks like they're all, I'm, I'm looking over this crowd the men of Judea and those that dwell at Jerusalem, it looks like they're buying it. Little by little, their faces are changing. Let's just see where this goes. Maybe we can gain something. Maybe that's what happened. If you're a critic, if you're a cynic, maybe that's what you're thinking. All right. Let's play this out. Maybe that happened. Let's see what this mass complicity got these men. Let's review where this lie got those that decided not to intervene. Let's see what the records say about how these men profited from Peter's lies. What do the sources 
tell us about these men in those earliest years of the church? What does the, whatever records we have, what does it tell us happened after that day of Pentecost, after they decided to go ahead and just kind of go along with it? Well, the, the truth be told, we don't have much. There are very, very few resources that relate facts about Jesus' followers past the events that are chronicled in the Acts of the Apostles. In fact, we know very little, very little about almost all of these people. And can I say that's my counter-argument number one? What these men got for their complicity with a lie is, first of all, near anonymity. I repeat, for the most part, we know almost nothing about these men, including the most famous ones. The few sources of information we have are scant, incomplete, and, well, sometimes kind of fanciful. Which leads us to ask the question, what's the point of lying? I mean, it's assumed that the lie was perpetrated in an effort to capitalize on the fame of Jesus. Wouldn't you agree? Isn't that what we said? Isn't that what we said was possible? That no one stood up because Jesus was so famous that they wanted to be a part of it too? I mean, down through the centuries, even to our present time, the I was there claim has led to long-term name recognition. Why do you think people love to be groupies? Because you can go around telling people you were with such and such when they did this or that. A modern example is Peter Lawford. He was arguably not much more than a two-bit actor who would have faded into obscurity except for the fact he was associated with Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, and Sammy Davis Jr. in the Rat Pack days. Remember that? Can you name one movie Peter Lawford was in? Might take you a while. But we remember Peter Lawford's name because he was associated with very, very famous people. Bringing it even more current, the entire Kardashian mystique was first generated by the simple fact that Rob Kardashian was the attorney for O.J. Simpson. His daughter Kim's success maybe have propelled her was propelled by her, let's just call it videotaped indiscretion. But really nobody would have cared had there not already been this indirect connection to the fame of OJ. Nobody would have cared. And we don't have to be so current to come up with examples. How about going back in history? We can see way, way back that fame by association was actually the purpose of the various royal courts. Men and women down through the centuries have been able to exert influence merely due to the fact that they knew someone else in the royal court. They were famous because they were seen with other famous people. I mean, wouldn't that have been the motivation to create and perpetuate this lie about Jesus, sort of manufacture his fame and then ride the coattails to notoriety? I mean, why else would you lie? Lying was supposed to make them famous. The truth is we know nothing about them. We know nothing about them practically. The, the records contain so little information because these people did not get famous by association. In fact, listen to me, the records that we do have actually indicate a preference for anonymity on the part of these men and women. 
where we do see these people engaging with others, they are never saying anything about themselves. They're only talking about Christ. That's all they're saying. And their story's never changed. Not from, from their mouths. Those first witnesses, the story never changed and it never varied person to person. I mean, Thomas, for example, is never found going around telling people that he taught Jesus everything Jesus knew. We never see Peter bragging about the time he cut off the ear of the high priest servant. None of that happened. In fact, quite the opposite in Peter's case. Listen to me. It's, <laughs> this is why I love this man. Peter. It's generally agreed that Mark, the writer of the gospel, received all the information for his gospel directly from, Mar um, from Peter. Mark received the information that he wrote in his gospel from Peter. Well, listen to what Graham Scroggie, Graham Scroggie, the great scholar, says about Mark's gospel. Listen to this, quote, details favorable to Peter are omitted in this gospel, while others not favorable are recorded. Peter made certain that Mark not include certain things that made him look good, make Peter look good. And he made sure to add things that made Peter look bad. Listen, that's not a smart way to get famous. I mean, why would you go to such risky lengths about lying about something so difficult to believe as resurrection and then go out of your way to downplay or even hurt your own reputation by being honest about such cowardly acts as denying that you even knew your very best friend? What's wrong with you? If you're trying to be famous, you fail. doesn't make sense. That wouldn't make sense. If Peter was lying, why not do a better job of it while you're at it? You've known liars before, haven't you? The story gets bigger and bigger and bigger every time they retell it. Well, Peter's lie got smaller and smaller and smaller with regard to himself. How about the John the Apostle? Although he wrote one of the four Gospels, we hear almost nothing about him from after Calvary. There's no more than a handful of references to him in the Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, and Paul only mentions John once in all of his letters. And even in his own book, John's own book on the life of his master, he doesn't even mention himself by name, not even once. He didn't even use his own name when referring to himself in his own gospel. What's wrong with you? Listen, if John is trying to get famous, he's going about it all wrong. If you're telling a lie, if you're going along with Peter's lie just to get famous, you're failing. Now, there are some extra biblical sources that refer to John from later in his life. And by that, I mean things that were written that are not of the New Testament, considered the New Testament. There are some things that we do Read about him from extra-biblical sources. Listen to this. How's this for being treated like a star? Tertullian and Jerome, two of the earliest historians and authors of the church, tell us that John the Apostle was so loved and so famous and so respected for his association with Jesus that he was thrown in a cauldron of oil by his enemies. Now, he somehow survived that only to be imprisoned and tortured when Emperor Nero decided to crack down on Christianity. And by the way, 
Wouldn't that have been a great time to renounce the lie when the Roman Empire was starting to come down on him? Nero and Domitian? Two of the greatest persecutors of the church the church has ever known? Wouldn't that have been a great time to take the pressure off? I mean, we're talking about the the period of John's life around the mid-60s A.D., Jesus had been dead already for 30 years by this time when Nero was cracking down on him, when Domitian was cracking down on him, when there was wholesale slaughter of Christians everywhere. This is around the mid-60s. A lot of the earlier followers that knew John and knew Jesus and knew John and Jesus together, they were already dead, either naturally or by the hand of executioners. Paul had been martyred. John was a long way from Jerusalem by that time. Why didn't he just say, all right, all right, you got me. We all lied. Peter was dead. Peter wasn't going to find out about it. Why didn't John just say, that's it, that's it, uncle. We thought it was going to get us rich and famous, but all we've gotten is prison, tortures, and beheading. Not worth it. I give in. Why didn't he say that? In fact, even if it wasn't a lie, even if it wasn't a lie, John and the others could have just lied that they lied. In other words, in order to relieve themselves from this constant threat of death, all they had to do was retell the whole story. Lie or not, John could have told a completely different account of Jesus, and he would not have had to suffer for the rest of his life. And you know what? To be honest, they say that the Apostle John actually got off easy. Of all of the apostles, it's believed that John was the only one to not die a martyr's death. He was the only one to die a natural death. That's not even talking about the thousands of early followers who were murdered for their Christian faith. Every one of the other apostles was killed because of this lie. Let's just take a quick look at how the some of the original liars ended up. See how they benefited from this lie. Let's see the ultimate reward the world paid to those who stood with Peter in Jerusalem on that Pentecost day so long ago. Let's review what we, the witnesses, endured at the end. We already talked about John. What about some of the others? Before John died, Peter spared only long enough to see his wife Perpetua hauled away to the executioner, was actually crucified upside down. Peter, Peter's brother Andrew He was thrown to the lions, somehow escaped unharmed, thrown in prison for extended periods of time, and eventually crucified by a local Roman governor. However, because Andrew had dared to convert members of the governor's family, namely his wife and brother, it was ordered that Andrew not be nailed to the cross, just so that He would suffer longer. He was just hung on that cross so that he would suffer up there longer. Now, tradition reports. Now, remember, what I'm telling you, the stories of the lives of the apostles after the New Testament, those stories are not scriptural. I'm not guaranteeing the veracity of these accounts. I'm just giving you something to think about. Tradition says that even as Andrew is hanging on that, listen to me, this, is, this makes me chuckle with nervousness, to be honest, because I just know I'm not this kind of man. The strength of character that this takes. As he was hanging on that cross, just waiting to die, he continued to preach Christ. And as a matter of fact, while he was hanging on that cross preaching Christ, people were continuously being converted. Now, by the way, again, I say, wouldn't this have been a good time to stop lying? 
I mean, Andrew was in the situation that he was in for a reason. He was hanging on that cross for a reason. And yet he continued to do the thing that got him on that cross in the first place as he was on that cross dying. Wouldn't that have been a good time to say that this was all a lie? Why didn't he do that? He didn't. He continued to preach the gospel as he was on the cross. Again, I'm saying this account is not scriptural, but if it's true, think about it. Doesn't it make you wonder? Don't you think at least there are enough enemies of Christ who could have been there writing down if he actually had? That would have been big news if Andrew would have said the whole thing was a lie, if Peter would have said the whole thing was a lie. That would have been big news. That would have been important news, by the way, in the Roman Empire. There would have been no need to crush the Christian church. There would have been no need for Nero to capture Christians and turn them into torches to light the Appian Way or whatever he used them to light up. Legend tells us. There would have been no need. If, if the Christians had heard that Andrew or Peter or John had confessed the whole thing was a lie, they would have stopped right there. Nobody would have gone to the lions. Nobody would have had to have been burned to death. None of that would have had to happen if somebody had reported that Andrew or John or Peter had said the whole thing was a lie. And believe me, if they had said it was a lie, somebody would have been there to report it. And it would have spread like wildfire through the Roman Empire, which was decidedly the enemy of Christianity at the time. And that didn't happen. And by the way, that tradition that tells us that Andrew hung on that cross preaching Christ, that same tradition tells us that Andrew was actually given the opportunity be, to be freed from that execution if all he would have done is leave and stop preaching Christ. He, all he would have had to do is leave. He didn't even have to lie to get himself off that cross. He refused. He refused to stop preaching a lie, if it was a lie. He was given a chance. He wouldn't even have had to admit it, just stop doing it. He wouldn't have had to say, dear world, I lied. He didn't have to do that to get off the cross. All he would have to do is just stop. He didn't even have to admit it was a lie, just stop doing it. He didn't. And don't you think somebody would have reported it if he had? Wouldn't there have been more than a few groups of disgruntled Christians that say, I can't believe Andrew just gave up like that and left, left us behind. All those disgruntled Christians would have got together and denounced Christianity forever. They would have become the anti-Christian league. I'm... I, Sure, is this a speculation? Yes. But don't you think there's some sense in it? Then you tell me what happened. You tell me why. Let's, let's go over a few more. There was an apostle named James the Great. It just means Big Jim. He was, a, he was beheaded by Herod Agrippa within about a decade of Jesus' death. We are told that he was executed by the prompting of the Sanhedrin, who condemned him for teaching that Christ was divine, then only he, Jesus, could save men's souls. And all he had to do to avoid being beheaded is just say, never mind, it's, it, Jesus, it was all a lie. Didn't do that. There was another apostle named James the Less, or Little Jim. He was stoned to death by a Jewish mob, no doubt for the same reason, that James the Great was. Philip, like Peter, was crucified upside down by the Roman governor of Hierapolis. And not only did Philip not ask for forgiveness 
for a lie, but it's reported that his last words were, clothe me in thy glorious robe and seal thy light that ever shineth until I have passed by all the rulers of the world and the evil dragon that oppresseth us. That is not a way to get yourself off a cross. People don't go through this for a lie. How about Bartholomew? Well, he was beaten with clubs, then skinned, and then finally beheaded. Thomas, remember the doubter? The guy that couldn't make up his mind until he saw, until he, till, Jesus had to appear to Thomas before he would change his mind. And then he never changed the story, never changed the story, even when he was being stabbed with a Brahmin spear in India. Never changed his st story. Never said, you know, I doubted it once. I kind of doubted it now. So you didn't even have to say that he was lying. He said, now I'm not so sure. That would have been enough. If he just would have said, now I'm just not so sure. That would have been enough to save his life. And then finally, Jude and Simon. They too were stoned to death by a crowd. Apparently because these apostles had scared the chief demons away of the little village that they were in preaching Christ. But before they died, Jude was run through with a spear and Simon was sawn into pieces. Do you think people endure that sort of stuff for a lie? All of the original liars, with the possible exception of John, According to tradition, and I'm going to repeat it now, most of this last section is not scriptural. It's literary accounts, not scriptural, extra-biblical. Nonetheless, even if these records are only partially correct, then these men, these liars, suffered exceptionally gruesome fates, both in life and in death, for something they knew was a lie? Does that even make sense? And then perhaps most convincingly in my mind, except for a few, all of these men died alone, far from their friends, far from anyone who would ever found who would ever find out that they recanted. Far away. They could have just said, never mind, it wasn't true, and then faded off into obscurity. We don't even have reports of that. So what does all this mean? Does it prove anything? No. Not in the traditional sense. I can tell you we probably wouldn't win a court case with this so-called evidence. But you know what? I'm not sure that's what God ever intended. All along, God has said he values faith, and Paul so graciously defined that for us. He said, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In other words, faith, which God highly praises, comes from things not proven. Again, you don't have to live in blind faith. God's not asking you to do that. He's giving you some evidence, but he's also taking you to a point where you have to decide. So I tell you again, you have a choice. You must examine what Scripture and the Holy Spirit tell you and then decide. Is it a lie, or did he rise? Now I'm going to give you a word of warning. Deciding is only the beginning. From the decision point on out, you have to live by your choice. You have to live. You have to live according to how you decided. So I'll ask you again, this time in closing. 
Did Jesus rise or not? You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.